This is unstructured. Today we're joined by Cheryl Atkinson. Cheryl Atkinson is formerly an investigative journalist with CNN, CBS, and did some work with PBS. She's also a New York Times bestseller of two books, Stonewalled and Smeared. Both these books are fantastic and I highly recommend them. I'm very thankful that Cheryl gave me a limited amount of time that I could sit down, talk with her, and hear from her about her story. Hope you guys enjoy it. I know I really did. Today I'm super excited to have somebody I've wanted to get on this show for a long time. Sometimes you start out having a podcast simply to meet amazing people that you really admire. And this is someone that I admire a great deal. I read her first book a couple of years ago, and I read her most recent book last year. This is Cheryl Atkinson. How are you doing today, Cheryl? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Now, Cheryl, you have an amazing past and a really wonderful history. And it's kind of a weird situation because I find you completely brave, but at the same time, I find it very troubling that you're having in journalistic integrity is bravery. Well, I, I understand kind of what makes you say that. It, it really doesn't feel brave, but it feels like I am sometimes swimming upstream, I guess you could call it, for doing the same thing that I've done for the past 30 years. But it seems like today, fewer and fewer people are meeting with success and doing that kind of reporting. Now, question on that. Do you think that is uh, strictly politically driven? Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard of the phrase Hanlon's razor? I haven't. Okay. It's essentially never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. I've, I've heard that, that comment. <laughs> well, I kind of wonder if sometimes maybe there's a situation where people have their natural beliefs and then they kind of gravitate to each other. Then they hire each other and it starts to become sort of a groupthink almost naturally. I think there's definitely a component of that. There always has been, and that's always been troublesome in our industry, but it was also something that couldn't not be overcome for many years. You know, it takes like any job, time and negotiation and understanding and maneuvering to do the kind of reporting that maybe you in particular, I think is fair, but it, it was accomplishable in many cases, if not in most. But what you add into that dynamic is what I wrote about in The Smear, which is a whole industry that has grown up around manipulating the news, distributing talking points and narratives. I'm talking about LLCs and nonprofits and super PACs and blogs and just all kinds of groups that exist to manipulate opinion, global law firms that have crisis management groups. And they figured out our weakness. They figured out that part that you just mentioned, how we do have groupthink, um, how to play to our natural, one of the guys I interviewed for my book said, we know how to play to the natural instincts of certain people so that we can get our narratives planted inside news organizations. And I think the whole thing is a combination of both, but the smear industry, as I call it, is a multi-billion dollar industry that exists to manipulate and shape our thought and what you see on the news. I could totally see that. And I kind of feel like the markets are almost driving this too. Have you ever heard of Ryan Holiday? He wrote a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying. No. <laughs> well, he's a, an internet marketer. He was the uh, chief marketing officer uh -huh. for American Apparel. And his claim to fame was he found ways to slip in fake ad campaigns and everything else into blogs. And as he puts it, 
the blogosphere bubbles up. And actually, if you hit the right blog that the other blogs are reading, you can shove in a fake story and it'll travel all the way up to the networks. Yeah. Well, he's right. I mean, it's, it's actually doesn't take brain surgery in part because I think we as journalists ask so few obvious questions once. And I, and I can't blame people because I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. But for years, it never occurred to me to ask people that I was interviewing what their other connections are. Like when, when a dangerous drug is on the market and a doctor who seems and presents himself as neutral and independent speaks, oh no, there's nothing wrong with this medicine. It's the greatest thing in the world. I used to just do those interviews. And when I got wise to how stuff works and these doctors are writing letters to the editor in their local community, defending the drug, for example, I started doing pretty easy internet searches. And I found in 100% of the instances, not just occasionally, the doctors were connected to the drug company financially that they were promoting, but they didn't tell you that. But I also found if you ask them, they will tell you, we just don't bother to ask. I mean, most of, most of the time, people that have conflicts of interest or financial ties, if you point blank ask them, they will at least, you know, dance around the edges enough that they're admitting to you that they have it. And you have to know that doesn't mean they're not good sources. Doesn't mean you're not onto a decent story. But in my mind, you have to know where people are coming from, or you don't really these days understand who's pushing a narrative. And I, I blame that whole phenomenon for the reason why, if you're watching the news, and I'm talking about whether you're watching Fox or MSNBC, they're still talking about the same three or four stories. They may, they may have different takes and slightly different people on there, but why are they all talking about the same three stories when there are a thousand news stories that could be presented in different ways around the world every day. And we're all talking about the same ones. Well, that's a product, in my opinion, of a very managed environment. Is it being driven possibly by economics as well? That um, I hate to quote Ryan again, but he talks about how bloggers, especially blog authors, have to turn out up to 20 pieces a day. And if you hand them something that's perfectly put in line, they're just like, okay, good. Oh, thank God. I don't have to write that one. And they just kind of let it go out without necessarily fact checking it quite as much. Well, that's a component of it for sure. You know, people are expected to turn out, let's say you want to work on a real piece, but you have to turn out five or six pieces of something else just to please, you know, the, the masters that need content. And so you're going to copy or pick up something somebody else wrote. Well, guess what? The industry knows that too. They know if they can plant a narrative or a, a fact, even if it's false in a certain blog and it, gets picked up on social media, that's going to eventually bleed over into mainstream media. Even if it's no more than, gee, we didn't really believe this story, but now everybody's talking about it. So now we at CBS have a legitimate reason to talk about it too. They know that's how it works. That's how they get the stuff, you know, the stuff on TV when it can't, it can't directly make the jump into legitimate news. They know how to use the back door of social media, their partners that they train to go out and become bloggers and so on. They know how to get it in there. But I also say the kind of reporting that is not that is very popular, and that actually makes money if people would do it. So the decision to not do investigative reporting and original reporting, the, the movement away from that that we've seen across the board is not economically driven, in my opinion. A lot of people think it is or say it is, but that kind of reporting doesn't cost a lot of money in every case. I didn't spend a ton of money at CBS doing investigations. It was a lot of thinking work. Hmm. And it makes money in terms of it's the pop, most popular thing that we do 
for viewers. It's, it's one of the few things viewers say they still like about journalists is real investigative journalism and consumer reporting and follow the money. Why aren't they doing that if that's what would really make them money? And that's where we get to, well, there are ideological concerns that go into this. There are corporate influences. And then there's this smear industry that is shaping what we report. Now, what are your thoughts about um, some of the independent, shall we say, YouTube? I don't know if I'd call them journalists or pundits. I don't know if they have degrees, et cetera, but like Tim Pool, uh, Philip DeFranco, people who have, you know, up to millions and millions of views and they're kind of outside of the mainstream looking in. Well, I don't know the people you named, but I think there's value in that. I think there's value in that, especially when we're leaving such a big hole of underreported and unreported material. And I do think people understand in most cases where they're getting their news from. In other words, if they're going to a YouTube or a citizen journalist, I think they know they're getting a viewpoint or maybe someone who has is coming from a certain angle, but, but they still want the information. They can't get anywhere else. So they feel like they're getting something of, of the truth, even if they have to wait it a little bit, depending on who's reporting it. The problem is, I think we should be filling the gap in the regular news. There should be a place people can turn where even if they like to watch their MSNBC or their Fox or their CNN, those people still, in my experience, would like to have a place they could turn where they don't have to discount the news one way or the other, where they think, well, I still want to go to a channel and kind of just see how it's played when it's played straight. I want to see the take of a reporter that's not personally invested in a viewpoint or a political leaning. Like, what is that person reporting? And we just don't have a whole lot of that right now. And do you see that changing? I don't in the near term. I think there's a demand for it, but there's no, you know, who, who is going to put that on? Like, where's the, where's the capability to do so? And not to, you know, blow the horn of the company where I work, but Sinclair, where I work, has given me that freedom. And I get calls about every other week from people at the networks who want to do this kind of reporting they see us do that really isn't anything different. It's nothing different from what I did maybe, you know, for 30 years at CBS and CNN and PBS, but they're not allowed to do that today at the networks and places like that. So they want to do that kind of reporting and it's not able to be done hardly anywhere. I have that freedom because this is an independent program. that's not advertiser driven in terms of, advertisers are not given the influence to stop stories on pharmaceutical industry or, you know, powerful interests. And they want these kinds of stories where I work now. And a lot of people see that and say, that's what I want to do too, but there's not an appetite for it at the other national publications. I mean, there is in the public, but not among the managers. You kind of have a, a similar path and maybe I'm extrapolating too much, but like John Stossel, I feel is not, that different from you in the sense of sort of going against the grain saying, well, wait a minute, I'm really going to report on this stuff as I see it. Yeah, I think I see similarities. I mean, he's, it takes a lot in some respects, I guess, for people to go against what they feel like is the approval of their colleagues and the group think, I mean, that was really surprising to me when I got into the industry that there was so much group think. And that doesn't bother me. It apparently doesn't bother John Stossel. I would go into newsrooms and on purpose for fun, make a statement that was contrary to what everybody else was talking about on a news item. Not because I even thought it, just because I thought there should be lively conversation and that we all shouldn't think the same way or be talking the same way because that leads to everybody acting like there's only one way to report it on a story or an issue. So you were trolling them. 
A little bit. I guess so, yeah, before <laughs> before it was called that. <laughs> well, since you've stepped off the reservation, so to speak, um, I, I've done the research. Do you find yourself getting accused of being conservative with the conservative Sinclair group or things like that? Well, yeah, and wh- what's ironic is I worked for, you know, three liberal, heavily liberal outlets in terms of their management and their donors of, of those who owned or ran the stations, PBS, CNN, and CBS. And yet the same people who point out I work for the conservative Sinclair group, which the owners are conservative, never said that about when I worked at the other place. It's, it's as if you work for liberal bosses, that's the norm. They consider that in the center. So anything that's not in the center is therefore somehow unacceptable instead of understanding I, and I was called liberal years ago, that I work for liberal organizations and I now work for a conservative one that lets me report freely and my reporting hasn't changed. <laughs> but they like to, you know, everybody wants to see everything through their own lens now. And it's ironic that the conservative group is by far more open and less, you know, no censorship, but less clamping down on certain kinds of stories than anywhere I've worked. And yet all you see is people want this narrative out there because they don't like those stories. You know, they're trying to find ways to stop certain stories and there's still a few places you can get stories like that. Yeah. I think that's been a positive change. I remember in the past that conservatives weren't always that open. They were a little bit more oppressive, especially when it came into religious angles and things like that. They've really changed a lot and hammered free speech, free speech very hard. Yeah. I mean, it's almost a switch. I think that people used to think liberal interests were very much for free speech. Liberal interests were very suspicious of organized government. And when I did stories that watchdogged the government and looked at taxpayer waste, many liberal interests loved those. And I was called liberal, you know, many times when I did those stories. Now, those same interests, they're very trusting of certain government, but not of other. I mean, it's very selective and it's almost like they've switched places. They don't want free speech. I mean, one of the most dangerous things I can think of now is this notion that someone's going to curate our news. They're doing this on Facebook. There's a movement, an organized movement to pass state laws so that fake news is curated and media literacy is taught in public schools, which is just the same people trying to stop you from hearing certain views and not just accurate views. They're trying to stop you from, you know, just trying to stop you from hearing certain views. And they realize the internet is the last bastion of places where people can get unfiltered information. They want to filter that. They don't want you to be able to find on Google searches certain viewpoints. So if they can controversialize it, label it as fake news and say that everybody's got to curate that out of your eyesight, there may be a day, you know, if, if you go back 50 years in today's current environment, they would be saying cigarettes can't cause cancer. That's junk science. It's not true. And you would never be able to find out otherwise because the environment would be so controlled that any studies that were contrary would be suppressed. You wouldn't be able to find them on in your research. I mean, I wonder now in this environment, what we're not going to learn or not going to be able to find out as efforts to manage what we can know and manage what we can find move forward. I agree. And that's somewhere I was heading actually. Have you noticed the stages of these corporate interests? Because technically you're talking about Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, they're all private corporate or public corporations, but they're not taxpayer run 
They are independent entities and they're targeting unpopular people starting off with, I think you're familiar with PragerU. Yes. Okay. A good example there is he's a very religious person, Dennis Prager. He has videos about history and things like that. Obviously there's not going to be a lot of foul language and things. It sort of go against the nature, but they're using parental controls on YouTube to hide the videos. Right. Then the next step they do with other people is they just flat out demonetize them and say, okay, well, we'll leave the video on here, but you can't get any ads on it. So you're not going to get any money. And then finally, they're deplatforming. And that's just flat out kicking people off every platform out there. And it's easy to see that if it's Alex Jones, because everybody thinks Alex Jones is crazy. But right. it's first they came. What are your thoughts on that? Well, even if Alex Jones is crazy, and I've never watched his material, but there's been a concerted effort to portray him as that. And I don't think some of what I've seen quoted as it's been passed around, some of it sounds out there. Some of it seems like entertainment. Some of it I think is true material. How is that so different from the National Enquirer? You know, people would want to outlaw that today instead of letting it be, be out there in the open. How is that even all that different from these major formerly well-respected news outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, making the most horrendous kind of incorrect fact errors, completely untrue, completely mischaracterized videos and quotes. How is one so different from the other that we're going to say, we won't let the public see, we don't even trust you to see and judge for yourself. We don't even want you to hear these viewpoints, but we're going to make these other news outlets that make these mistakes be the arbiters of what's fake news. We're going to let them be the police and help Facebook pull out the truth and the falsity of things. That's, that's ridiculous in my book. Secondly, you may know this, but Facebook is owned by, I'm sorry, Google is owned by Apple and Apple's as a parent company was run by a man who was Alphabet, Hillary Clinton's yeah. top donor in the last cycle. Alphabet. I'm sorry, yeah. Alphabet, not Apple. Yeah, yeah Eric sorry. Schmidt. Sure. Google is run by Alphabet and Schmidt was, you know, completely involved in the Clinton campaign from his donation standpoint in the company and also offering up his services as a consultant. There's nothing neutral about Google in my mind in terms of what you think, what they would think they could and should do with their company. And then these companies rely on the government as to whether they're going to be regulated or not. And under the Obama administration, there were Department of Justice threats of action. So they have to please that particular government. So it, it's perilous, I think, when even a pro supposedly private corporation who we hope is acting independently is actually making these decisions because they're mired in political and fin financial interests, just as the government is. I think I would advocate everything except that which is illegal should be let let it be. People can curate their own news unless they ask for a curation. Yes, offer that, you know, say, I want my news curated. You decide mm -hmm. for me. But short of that, let it be. Let people find and make up their own minds. Don't invite third parties who are always going to have some interest in the background, financial or otherwise, making decisions. Let us be the judge of that. Would you consider yourself then to be a, a free speech and free press absolutist then? I don't know. I don't know what that means exactly. I, I 
I hesitate to say yes, and then okay. someone would make an example that I wouldn't agree with. But free so I'm speech very strong has... on free speech and free free press, obviously. Absolutist would be essentially you can say anything, no matter how repugnant or repulsive it is, as long as it's not a call to action, like fire in a movie theater or go hit that person, because that's not free speech. That's well, not speech. It's an action. I support the right under our constitution and our form of government for people to say anything except that which is illegal. So I think that's pretty clear. Maybe that makes me an absolutionist. I don't may not agree with a speech, but that's that's the point. I mean, that's why I think people have lost sight of the fact that the reason that was such a careful protection of this country is when someone starts deciding what is hate speech, well, that may sound good to you today, you know, the first thing they came up with. And then tomorrow someone says, well, you know, you sound hateful toward our government or are this certain political leader. And what they're really trying to do is make sure you can't speak out against the political leaders. I went to Morocco and this was still the case about the King where the, I was told that the press can't criticize the King there. And if they do, one had disappeared and they were printing blank pages in the newspaper where his articles used to be as long as he was missing because he had printed critical stuff. I mean, we're not so far from that. If you think about where all of this goes, if we think that we should be allowing the government and third parties to decide what we can can't say and what's hate speech and what's love speech <laughs> and popular speech doesn't need to be protected right um on that note do you have any tips or tricks on how to not be bamboozled by fake news or government pr which sometimes is the same thing well it's so it's easy for me to say you know and harder for people to do because they're supposed to be able to look at the news and sort through some of that and instead i say quite the opposite when you see the same people, phrases, and themes and narratives on the news day in and day out, that's usually a result of a concerted effort. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it may not be true, or it may not be the whole story, or it may be out of context. And you definitely should be asking yourself, as I do when I see that, who wants me to think it? So I look at the news and I don't go, wow, that must be true, because look at everybody who says so. I think, who wants us to believe that's true? And then I, I go down sort of this other alternate mental path and I have time to do it in certain stories and that's my job to do it. I feel bad that, you know, the public, they're living their lives. They're, they're trying to get their information. Someone just telling them like it is, they shouldn't have to go through that exercise. But I think that's, that's what you have to do today. There are key astroturf language phrases that when someone is trying to debunk a story, for example, it often makes me think, we're on to something. You know, when that happens to me, I know I'm close to a truth. Usually the, the harder the effort is to push back against it on social media through these organized campaigns. They use AstroTurf language a lot like crank, quack, nutty, conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat. I mean, there's certain hallmarks. I write about this in the smear. They kind of guarantee this is tried and true AstroTurf language and organized campaign. Those phrases test well because for whatever reason they work on people, they make people, um, Think twice about a story if you say it's been debunked, even if it hasn't. You say it long enough and suddenly it's controversial and debunked. There's all kinds of strategies. So I guess it's just buyer beware and don't believe at face value hardly anything that's reported at first, no matter how many people report it, no matter who, many, who reports it. Suspend your belief long enough to, um, you know, till the facts get sorted out a little better. Now, on that note, you've had your own troubles with your computer being hacked by some party in the government. Do you know if that's going on still with the current administration? 
It's impossible for me to know that, but I do think there's been a long-term efforts by our intel agencies to surveil politicians, journalists, and innocent American citizens to capture them in so-called incidental surveillance by kind of reverse targeting through a legitimate source, but they really wanted to hear somebody, you know, surveil somebody close to them that they couldn't get a wiretap on. There's ways around that. So I think there's a really serious and abusive process in place and some bad actors. And it's one of the biggest stories of our time that people aren't covering because the narrative is pointing us all toward Russia, 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 which hasn't netted anything yet, I might add, in terms of Trump illegally colluding with Russia. And yet what we have uncovered is a huge and seemingly organized, whether it's insurance policies they said they wanted to develop or something else, effort to frame, however you want to put it, frame, blame, controversialize the Trump administration and people in it, I think, so they wouldn't dig into the surveillance abuses of the past 15, 20 or plus years, which they were going to do. That was one of General Flynn's missions uh, when he came into the Trump administration and the intel agencies <laughs> knew that. He went quick. And they wanted him no yeah, they wanted him nowhere near and they set about job one, getting rid of him, job two, making sure sessions were queued. And with that, as long as they had an active investigation of some kind against Trump, they could keep him away from his own Justice Department because they can just cry obstruction every time he tries to use his own Justice Department as every other president has done. Well, Trump can't. He can't go near it because he's under investigation. Well, I know you have a hard out. So to wrap it up, I have one more question. How do you feel about what we're doing to ourselves with the popular consumer product, um, the Echo by Amazon, you know, Alexa and Hey Google and all these devices where maybe we're volunteering our own information? I see it a little bit as I do when we started using credit cards. And at first people, I don't want to give my information and they're going to know what I buy. And pretty quickly, it was so convenient that we all did. And honestly, by and large, as much credit card fraud as there is, I would say most people prefer the convenience and obviously don't change their credit card practices because they know there's potential for fraud. I kind of think this is the same way. It's so convenient and so cheap and so out there, people are going to use it. And we are giving our data to the government. They're getting it anyway. And they're getting it this way. They're getting it because we're giving it to them through Google and Alexa, um, they're getting it online, you know, in ways people don't even understand the laws that allow them to gather everything we do now. I mean, just everything we do if they want it. So I don't know. It's sad to say, I kind of feel like it's, it's a, a battle that can't be won now. If you're talking about protecting your privacy or your data, you know, they passed a law not long ago in Great Britain where they do have some control over consu uh, consumers own data and that people are punished and companies are punished if they take it without the proper notices or payments. Maybe something like that would help here. Um, I'm not sure. You know, there's nothing that can stop our government, I don't think, from what it's been doing. And Congress hasn't even tried as much as they cry out against it. The leaders in both parties don't let them really investigate these abuses by, you know, intel actors or abuses within the FISA court. So I don't know what I don't know what we can do about it. Well, hey, thank you so much. And what is next for Cheryl Atkinson? What do you have coming up? I um oral arguments in my lawsuit against the government for computer intrusions are January 29th. I'm focused on that because the government's spending your tax money fighting to protect the government computer intruders instead of holding them accountable. It's been a very long process. 
And I continue on my weekly show, Full Measure, trying to just bring underreported and undercovered facts to light, especially if people are trying to cover them up. So enjoying enjoying both of those pursuits. <laughs> Great show. And by the way, for the audience, um, you have a GoFundMe. I believe it's called uh, Cheryl Atkinson Fourth Amendment Litigation Fund. And I encourage everyone to check yes, that out. Yes. Um, let me just say that some lawyers, I spoke at a Fourth Amendment abuses law conference and they this is a landmark case that hasn't gotten much news coverage but the lawyers know about it and they asked what civil rights and press rights groups were assisting me and i said none and what grew out of that is a very kind group of lawyers and advocates and whistleblowers got together and started this fund which has been very very helpful and a super expensive and onerous process so i appreciate that a lot well hey thank you so much for coming on thank you Hey there, thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players, and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com, and I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing, here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again.